Hello, this is Cambridge Radio. My name is uh, uh, Pork. <laughs> uh, what? Uh, David Pork uh, from the pig family. Uh, it's a long <laughs> tradition here at, at Cambridge. Uh, we have, we have, of course, a branch in Eton, and uh, another one in uh, in the other Oxford. We also are at Oxford. The pig family stretches like uh, the dunes of Southwich all across the Mary continent. Uh, we 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 are an intellectual family. Uh, we have we have, of course, uh, Proust was a member of the pig family. His name was Proust Pork. Uh, a lot of people don't understand that. It's uh, and of course, my family is most famous for inventing swine. Uh, was created. Uh, yes, swine. It's uh, so a lot of people don't understand that pigs are cows, <laughs> ugly cows, like essentially. Now. Well, it's you know we are an international family, of course. <laughs> we do have, in fact, every person in Australia is related in some way or the other to the pig family. Uh, and it, it, a lot of people don't understand. We go from Brighton to Brixton. <laughs> We're from London to. La- Lancashire. <laughs> uh, we are, we are have we have members and agents in every private and public school in the entirety of the UK. <laughs> all right, all right. <laughs> I don't know why are you letting me talk like this, baby. I don't. Know. I'm humiliating myself. It's, it seems like you had an idea there. I didn't have an idea. What my idea? What is my idea there? That I'm from. I'm a guy named Jim Pork from the pig family. I don't know. At one point, I said that pigs are just ugly cows. <laughs> How could you? I thought you were supposed to be the smart one. How are you not pushing back? Pigs are not ugly no, cows. I'm the smart one for letting you keep going because the people at home will think it's funny. It's, you know, this is, it's, uh, we've talked about this before, but for some reason, my always just uh, you know, snap the snap of the finger desire is to just humiliate myself in front of thousands of people that listen to this podcast. Just absolutely debase myself. I think that's what Lena Dunham's fetish is. Yeah. Well, no, she's got some other ones, but I, I didn't think that we were, this isn't an episode about that. Right. Uh, let's just say that, that footmen are not the, not just a British term for butler. Uh, but in fact, that very famous people can be that as well. Oh boy! Yeah, I you know I'd like to steal her dog and do a Lindbergh baby bit with it. Well, welcome to Trunon. Yes, she did. <laughs> On that note, uh, I'm Liz. My name is Brace. We are joined, <laughs> of course, by producer Young Chomsky. And what are we talking today, Brace? Well, we are talking about the new explosive report leaked to the press uh, about uh, labor, the Labor Party. Yeah, the Labor Party. So I don't know if everyone is if everyone's familiar about what's going on, but there was. Um, there's a, a kind of internal report that was leaked in the um, basically uh, internal report on the Labor Party that was leaked. The Labor Party didn't want it getting out, but it got leaked to various press outlets. And it's about a thousand pages. And boy, is it a doozy. Yeah, it does not. Uh, let's say there's a cast of characters in it. And of course, I've made a list of their names and a little dossiers on each uh, for private consumption. Uh that does not it does not cast them in so favorable of a light Uh, no no it basically like paints a picture of what looks to be a pretty right wing uh you know cadre we'll say Mm -hmm. that was wrecking like intentionally and uh successfully wrecking jeremy corbyn and the you know the corbynites of the party yeah, and it seems like they were doing this basically on every front. I mean, in terms of uh, election campaigning, in terms of handling anti-Semitism complaints, in terms of basically uh, colluding with right-wing media outlets. Mm-hmm. It's pretty astounding in the scope of it. 
Yeah. I mean, it's like, it, yeah, it is. It's, it's, it's pretty breathtaking actually. Um, and you know, made me, uh, just kind of made me think about purges. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. 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 I, I, it made me think a lot of stuff that I don't feel comfortable saying on the podcast. <laughs> I'll say that. Uh, well, so who do we have today to talk? Cause we don't want to just get into it. So we're bringing someone on. Yeah. We are, better. we are bringing in a friend of the pod. Marcus Barnett, who is uh, the international officer for Young Labor, uh, to come talk about uh, basically what's in this report and sort of the consequences of it. Um, yeah, and uh, we have that coming for you right now. Neoliberal. I'm not going to do an accent. I, I, I respect you, Marcus. I'm not going to do an accent. Here. You know what? I oh, will. You could do a Cockney one, maybe. I will. Do- <laughs> no. It's. Oh, my God. Brace's British accent is awful. It always no, like. Try, I'm not going to do a British Australian accent. I'm not going to do a British accent. I'm going to do an Australian accent. That's so, you can't do a British accent. I know. I know. I know. Uh, I, I can't do it. I still can't do it. I, I know. That uh, I don't even have an excuse to say no here. I was just trying to do the Australian thing. Welcome to True or Not. We are joined by Marcus Barnett, who is the international officer for Young Labor, which is why uh, you know we've sent emails to the Labor Party. They have provided us with Bar- Marcus, and uh, that's actually not true. I I, I just I sent him a message, uh, but he is here to join us to talk about these explosive uh, new leaks and this big ass report that. Uh, that is is the talk of the town here. Marcus, how you doing? Yeah, I'm good, mate. How are you? I'm doing good. It's good to see your no, face again. Oh, you too, man. Not been for a while. Yes. Well, you're supposed to come on the show before, but we're unfortunately interrupted by uh, some uh, bad events there. <laughs> yeah. yeah, things have really gotten away recently, eh? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, it is. How's, first of all, how's lockdown? Yeah, lockdown's all right. So um, I managed to get out of London. Um, I work for a trade union and they basically, um, obviously trade unionists have, you know, all sorts of conditions, you know, that life of drinking and working, you know, 25 yeah. hour days does that to you. And my, uh, commute is from Northeast London to Southwest London. Uh, and it's, it's a hell commute and, uh, you have to go in the underground and, uh, the RMT union, uh, they, they basically told Sadiq Khan, look, you have to get real with this. Like very, very early on, they said, look, you know, this is really bad. You should be copying what New York transit's doing. You should be deep cleaning every three days. And currently the regime in the uh, London Underground is that it gets deep cleaned every 22 days. Mm. And uh, Sadiq knocked back the uh, the offer from the RMT or, or the band rather. And uh, that was that. I, I told my employer and they were just like, yeah, it's probably a really bad idea coming in. Yeah. Okay. This was yeah. during the period too, where it was like, you know, the, um, the stuff about people being like asymptomatic. Yes. Which started to really terrify people. So yeah. uh, I was like, look, who knows, who knows what I could be carrying? <laughs> uh, well, that's the whole thing. Like, that's what makes it, like, basically impossible to go hang out with people or do anything like that because you don't know if you're a carrier. Yeah, completely. Wait, so, before we get into the labor report, I do have one question. Do you think Bojo had it? Yeah, oh, so you're a truther. <laughs> I've yes. never met a truther or a truther campaign I didn't like. I'll just say that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think the guy had it. I, th- I think uh, I think I the guy of, had it. I think he you know, kind of had it too. Yeah, yeah. So, he looked rough. He looked really rough. I will it would say, be really funny though if he didn't. My friend, it's more fun to think that. My friend Kelsey, imagine like, the audacity. You know? <laughs> <laughs> my friend Kelsey prevented, presented me with a fairly comprehensive and detailed, uh, basically explanation of how it could easily have been a. Uh, a sort of ruse to get some heart work done. Mm. Um, I, I'm probably going to talk about it more on a stream tomorrow, but I will say like, I was, I was a, a truther and then I was like, well, he probably had a mild case, but it seems to be that he either had like a really mild case of it and they were just being very careful or mm. there was some, uh, or, or my man needed to get his heart enlarged. 
<laughs> Which is funny because I've always thought of him as being able to just love basically infinitely, but uh, apparently his doctors disagree. He's a great guy. Yeah, he's a, <laughs> uh-huh, big, how can you make it bigger? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, Elective heart surgery. Yeah, he's like, I just want to be able to love. I need more capacity. <laughs> so, so recently a report was leaked. Uh, this report was supposed to be sent to the EHRC. And it looks like labor labor lawyers nixed that, uh, and it was released to the general public, sort of like you know through back channels, and then of course just everybody had it. Uh, can you give me a little background on this? Like, what's going on? Why? What is the EHRC? Why would you need to leak a report to them, or why would you need to send a report to them in the first place? So the Equality and Human Rights Condition uh, was uh, set up under New Labour, and it was basically established uh, as a as public body, and maybe. 14 or 15 years ago to basically like promote enforce non-discrimination laws and uh you know commit you know sort of develop reports about you know systemic racism in certain uh institutions in british society and so on uh that's been its role for a very long time uh all sorts of opinions about uh the sort of things it should be doing or criticisms of what it's done in the past or whatever uh but it was you know probably one of the real positives of new labor era particularly after the you know there was a, a big case in the UK, uh, the Stephen Lawrence case, where effectively like a huge inquiry concluded that the police were institutionally racist, and it was very difficult to tackle police attitudes about solving, you know, cases involving young black men, particularly. And uh, the EHRC was created out of, uh, you know, broad frustration that there's no way to, you know, regulate and uh, keep tabs on potential, you know, systemic racism inside of institutions in Britain. Uh, so in 2018. Uh, Obviously, Labour had a huge uh, anti-Semitism crisis and uh, the EHRC was actually brought in to investigate these claims and uh, particularly to investigate, you know, uh, quite emphatic claims that the apparatus of the Labour Party wasn't taking uh, particular cases seriously uh, and whether, you know, it needed to be investigated properly for institutional racism against Jewish people. And this was intended to be the report compiled by Labour's staff um, but to the best of my knowledge, the new Labour leader, Sir Keir Starmer, uh, his uh, legal team rejected sending the report to the EHRC and somehow it's leaked out into the public. Yeah. And it's like a thousand pages. I mean, this is like a hefty report. It's, 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 yeah, it's, it's you know. It's a big boy. Yeah, it's a big boy. It's a deep dive. You <laughs> so know. This, this investigation by the EHRC is still ongoing. Then. Uh, so that was in, uh, yeah, it's still, it's still yet to reach a conclusion, but. This was intended to be uh, Labour's uh, report to the EHRC about like the role of the um, compliance unit in kicking out anti-Semites from 2014 to 2019. Yeah, so, I mean, I'm sure many of our listeners are aware, but one of the big things that was basically fa- Corbyn was facing during her, almost his entire tenure as the Labour leader uh, was claims that not only was labor anti, it's, uh, labor institutionally anti-Semitic under him, that he himself was an anti-Semite. And that was a pretty big deal. I mean, the British press, uh, they, they certainly enjoyed writing about it. I think, and I, I read that there was one study that, uh, tallied 5,500 newspaper articles on the topic between 2015 and 2019. It's from a Jacob, Jacobin article, which is quite a lot. I mean, that's way more. Another thing was, you know, they would call him a Czech spy, but the, the anti-Semite thing really stuck. And, mm. and I remember that was like the big thing was that not all, yes, there, were, there was sort of the accusation that he himself was anti-Semitic, which was pretty hard to make that stand up under any sort of scrutiny. Um, but the big thing was that, that he and his staff were dragging their feet in kicking out anti-Semites. Um, and, and this report shows something of a different uh, reality right well yeah i'd say so um i think the main takeaway from a lot of this is like the and i think what people are rightfully taking away from it is the sheer amount of uh nastiness which emanated from serious party staffers you know very you know senior management figures all the way through the period that corbyn was the leader including you know openly wishing that we'd lose very significant by-elections in labor heartlands hoping that we you know that, that well hoping that they'd be able to brief to the media that we were losing seats, you know, in our droves in 2017. And also uh, something which I believe is going to be compounded with a further report, uh, that they were organizing separately uh, to, you know, for factional reasons to save right-wing candidates in an election they thought was going to be a wipeout. 
but in reality was an election due to due to the sort of platform and politics that Corbyn was espousing, uh, an election in which we got our biggest share of the vote since 1945. You know, so it, it really, you know, really burst a lid on kind of things that we thought were happening, you know, mm. but we sounded far too crazy to, you know, openly say were happening. <laughs> that, that's, that's, that's really what I took away from this because, you know, I, I, you know, I know you, I know a few other people in labor, and I know that there has been – it's been very obvious just like being able to watch it from afar even that there have been some opposition to Jeremy Corbyn's uh, – not even just his actual um, role as possibly becoming prime minister, but just really the party itself underneath him, and and this does sort of lay that bare. I mean, this is there there with the twenty seventeen election, like you mentioned, it it came pretty close, right? Like Very I mean, the, he came about two thousand two hundred twenty votes away from being the prime minister. Really which close. Is, <laughs> that is extremely close. Yeah. Um, and I mean, there are, there are text messages from, from labor staffers. And now who were these, like, what, what kind of roles did these people play in the party? Uh, so they were, they were really serious people. They were in charge of the, uh, compliance unit, the infamous compliance unit, you know, which is basically in charge of membership and, you know, who gets to be a member or not. Uh, they were executive directors of the party, you know, incredibly senior people. Uh, there were people in the, you know, one of the people was the general secretary of the party, which is, you know, really like the the final boss of Labour. Yeah, you know, they they were really, really, uh, really senior people. Because it's it's it's. I mean, some of the leaked text messages in this report, and we'll link the report in the uh, description to the episode, shows them basically getting ready to celebrate a large loss uh, on the night of the 2017 election, and then being absolutely crestfallen when it it looks like Labour was doing well. Yeah, there's a great quote from it, isn't there? Um, this is a, a 10.44, so about, you know, about three quarters of an hour after the exit poll came out, which said that there's a hung parliament. Um, <laughs> this is a, someone saying, we will have to suck this up. The people have spoken, bastards. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that, like, one of the, I, at least for me, it's like, kind of like what you're saying. It's like everyone kind of knew that this was going on, but to see it in print like all laid out is truly shocking even if it's not surprising in a way oh yeah absolutely um yeah my friend uh my friend watched the navara media uh show about it Mm -hmm. last tuesday and my friends you know he's broadly on the left but he's he wasn't particularly active uh under corbyn in the party and he was always like a little bit of what you call a corbyn uh, corbyn skeptic but like he wrote to me and said like look i'm a I'm really, really sorry that I doubted you on this. You know, <laughs> I'm really, really sorry that I didn't believe you when uh, you were talking about all of these rogue bureaucrats effectively. And I was like, look, you know, I, you know, I kind of started feeling that I was insane a bit, you know, let alone, let alone other people thinking I was insane when I was saying, look, you know, the people running the Labour Party literally want us to lose to the Liberal Democrats in Manchester. And they, they say that young Labour activists should be dying in fires and they're sitting on anti-Semitism complaints. You know, you start to feel like a little crazy yourself if you start saying stuff like that. So it's, it's, it's astonishing to have it all on paper like that. Well, it, it reminded me a lot of some of the WikiLeaks and the Podesta emails uh, that came out in, uh, in relation to the, to the 2016 presidential campaign in the U.S., where you saw uh, basically the people at the highest ranks of the Democratic Party essentially saying the same things about Bernie Sanders. And it's one of those things that, like, yeah, you do sound paranoid and crazy when you talk about it. And then, of course, like, it's astounding to actually get to be able to see it instead of just, like, assuming that it's happening or basically knowing in your heart that it's happening to actually see the text messages between these people. Oh, and, it's incredible. Should, should I read out some of these here? Yeah, Absolutely. please. So, yeah, so, um, <laughs> this, is, this is such a such a diamond bit. So it looks like from these messages that they made a safe space for right-wingers in the general secretary's office. They use that phrase, safe space time. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, they were describing their parallel factional body as the war room, which is just like so pathetic, you know? They're very well. Describing like a, an, election, an electoral headquarters as a war room. And uh, yeah. They so say, like, dorky. If, if anyone in war room needs some safe space time, they can come to GSO, which means general secretary's office. And uh, what, what's the atmosphere like in there? Awful. Help. Split between <laughs> euphoria and shock. And he is such a good quote. They are cheering, presumably meaning left-wingers. They are cheering and we are silent and grey-faced. 
opposite to what I had been working towards for the last couple of years. <laughs> <laughs> which, which, I mean, to be clear then, that means they were working towards losing the election for the political party that they work for. It's astonishing. It's, it's amazing. It, it's like, there's one person in particular, uh, Dan Hogan, who is a disputes officer. Which is, can you explain, like, I think a lot of people may not get, like, the Labor Party functions very differently than, like, the Democratic Party. Like, you, it's a membership party. You can have, I mean, people can file complaints about people. You can have your membership revoked. And so, like, what does a disputes officer do? So, basically, when people complain to the party and, you know, try and get an investigation about another member, perhaps, or, you know, alert the party to the conduct of a member that might be bringing the party into disrepute. It's the job of a disputes officer to effectively investigate the case and uh, recommend action that should be taken to their superiors. And so so it's a relatively serious job. This guy, Dan Hogan, said uh, in, in relation to a, a fellow staff member who was cheering, I guess Corbin made an appearance at the, the office or something like that, and a staff member cheered for his arrival. Uh, he said that he should be taken out and shot, which seems like a pretty serious thing to say about a coworker who is cheering the uh, leader of the party that you work for. Uh, but a lot of these guys seem to be drawn for something called labor students. Uh, yes. What is, yes. can you explain to me a little background on labor students? What the hell is that? Uh, so labor students was, uh, it's, it's basically an organization which was established by the right wing of the party several decades ago, just as the left was kind of leaving it in the eighties. And it was effectively created in order to ensure that there'd be a counterbalance to the, the broader youth movement in the Labour Party, which was always much more left-wing, yeah. more kind of activist-minded, more interested in trade union work, building mass demonstrations. And also, you know, once you bring people into that, you know, style of activity, it means you're starting to create a new activist base and, you know, one which is far more socialist rather than a kind of professionalised, you know, like West-wing LARPA style of uh, politics. And uh, there was a huge effort all the way through... Uh, Blair's ascendancy through the party up until, well, you know, a little while ago when we abolished Labour students through the NEC, where it was this huge effort to basically make Labour students a pure right-wing organisation where you can effectively platform the people that you want to be MPs in 10 years' time. You platform Mm. them through it, you send them around, you get them to meet important people, you get them internships with decent MPs, and they get to be the face of the future of Labour. And they had a huge amount of funding. Uh, They had several full-time officers, you know, like, uh, all of their three elected officials all got full time. Meanwhile, I was elected uh, on a much greater number because also Young Labour does one member, one vote elections. Uh, you know, so I was elected by thousands of people. Uh, the chair of Young Labour was elected by thousands of people. Lara McNeil, our NEC youth rep, was elected by thousands of people. You know, the the people who uh, the people who vote in the Labour students elections are really small. In fact. I was doing a pub quiz a few weeks ago for Brent Young Labour, which is a London Young Labour branch, and uh, a question on it was about uh, who got more votes in the previous Labour students' election. Yeah, so the question was, uh, what's larger, the entire number of eligible voters in Labour students' 2019 national elections, or the number of votes that Joe Exotic won in the 2018 Oklahoma gubernatorial Libertarian Party primary? (laughs) I'm assuming it was the latter. Well, Joe Exotic got 664 votes, and the <laughs> number of votes cast in the Labour students' national election was 507. Such as, you know, and this is in a party which has 110,000 members under the age of 27. And, and so it looks like in Labour, there is, uh, again, like, like, kind of like the Democratic Party, like there is an apparatus that basically selects uh, politicians who will be acceptable to the right wing of the party and boost them on a national level. Absolutely, yeah. Just creating a cadre for the right, you know, the, the next managerial politics for tomorrow. But, but a lot of people come through the apparatus and, you know, that bureaucratic framework which prepares the, the future functionaries of the Labour Party, uh, that came under very heavy fire from when Corbyn joined and hundreds of thousands of young people joined. It totally threw it under and obviously the, the, immediately there was huge, huge demands for the democratisation of Labour students. Um and you can see why, because, you know, you look at these uh, files and you see the sort of culture that Labour students has created, you know. It's vicious, yeah, absolutely. vicious culture. Well, it's just like funneling records into the party, basically. Yeah, yeah completely. It, it's incredible. You also see a lot of nepotism within this report, too. Mm. You see people sort of being shunted around from, from different office to different office. 
And I mean, it creates, and I don't want to sound, listen, you know me, I don't want to sound crazy here, but it does seem like there is something akin to uh, a deep state <laughs> within labor. Uh, and, and why would they be opposed to basically the ascendance of, or the, uh, yeah, the ascendancy of the left and Jeremy Corbyn's leadership of the Labor Party? Like, why would a social democratic party be opposed to a social, de- a wildly popular, especially at the time of his, ele- uh, excuse me, his, his, his first being elected to its position, uh, leader, why would, why would the staff of that organization be opposed to that? I mean, it's a great question because you really got to, when you look through this stuff, above anything, you just kind of think, like, what are these people doing in the Labour Party? Like, what's the, the, you know, there's a line in it where they say that anybody to the right, sorry, anybody to the left of Gordon Brown is a trot, you know what I mean, in a Trotskyist. And you do just sort of think, like, what, are the, are the 80% of the British population that supports rail nationalisation, are they all Trotskyists? Are the, you know, the 60% who want the big five energy companies nationalised? They all Trotskyists as well. With a lot of this stuff, you just start thinking, like, why on earth are you so far to the right of the general public and you're meant to be in the, the broad labor movement, you know, progressive views organization? It's, it's incredibly strange. Yeah, and, and, and they, they seem to have actually worked against that. I mean, so, or, excuse me, worked against the party in multiple ways, too. I mean, it's like we were saying earlier, there was a lot of accusations about anti-Semitism and... Uh, there was a big, basically one of the big problems was that labor seemed to be dragging its feet on bringing a lot of these cases to not trial, but um, to the process where, where, where they would be resolved, where the person would either be kicked out or given a warning or something like that. And, and it seemed like there were just all these, all these uh, cases that just weren't going anywhere. And it seems from this report that that wasn't exactly how it actually was, or that might've been, though that is how it was, but that might've been a little bit deliberate, right? Mm. Well, I mean, there was examples like in February 2018, um, the case was highlighted on Twitter, this fella called uh, Michael Lee, uh, a Jewish Chronicle journalist called him out because all sorts of wild comments he was putting up uh, alongside pro-Corbyn, pro-Labour posts. Uh, you know, He called Jews cockroaches. He was tweeting things about Holocaust denial. He said things like, uh, never trust anything a Jew says. And mm-hmm. he was peddling all sorts of conspiracy theories about how uh, you know Jews are pushing the Great Replacement and you know, I think in his words, organizing white genocide. And uh, there's no evidence that this guy was ever suspended or that, like, the idea of him being suspended or even investigated was, you know, ever discussed or considered. That there's no evidence that, you know, sort of notice of investigation that should have been sent out for him. It doesn't look like it was ever, like, considered. Um, so the, there's things like this where the old right-wing apparatus of the party was, you know, very clearly sitting on these things. And, you know, the big, big questions have to be asked, like, you know, these these are, you know, pretty full on horrible far right people. Why are they? Why would the day there's been allowed in our party? Yeah. What has the response from the party been? Uh, so the leadership statement was that there's going to be an independent investigation into it. But, you know, I think particularly with the sort of comments that they said about Diane Abbott and Dawn Butler, mm-hmm. you know, Diane Abbott was the first elected uh, black female MP in Britain. And the sort of comments that they were, you know, bringing out about her. Like, I don't know if you guys saw this. Yeah, I saw it. It was pretty awful. I mean, it's well, really disgusting. To give a little background to our listeners, Diane Abbott, who is known for being like a close Corbin ally, is basically like, you know how people go crazy about Maxine Waters in America and like say insane shit? I mean, I insane shit about her. And a lot of it's very racially tinged. Imagine if like... The people way people treat Diane Abbott is like a way people treat Maxine Waters mixed with Ilhan Omar. Like they just despise her. That's a good way uh, of putting it. Yeah. Like like it's it's she is a she is a a big target for uh, let's say racially motivated uh, speech. Yeah, it's been you know it's been said that she gets more abuse than like any politician in Western Europe, basically. Absolutely, yeah. You know, vicious, vicious attacks on her, and like some of the stuff that these party officials are saying about her, uh, calling her truly repulsive. Uh, calling her an angry woman, <laughs> you know, mm. just it's just a, obviously such a classic racist trope, and like saying hey, stuff hey. like Diane Abbott literally makes me sick. And there's one one particular bit in the report is uh, they're talking about how she's crying in the toilets, and um, they actually get in touch with uh, a journalist, or at least they they say they do. They get in touch with a right work with like a sort of liberal centrist journalist called Michael Crick. Uh, tipping her off about where she's crying 
Mm. And like, Which is... it's just twisted. And uh, Michael Walker at Navarra, uh, he he looked up the the date of uh, you know when she was said to be crying, and it was she was crying because a conservative official made the news the day before. Uh, because he retweeted a message aimed at Diane Abbott, which was like very, very racist, and was making jokes about like her lips and the, the lipstick she wears. You know, and the the Tories suspended this guy over this. You know, she's upset over it, and the response of the people who are salaried to have her back, their response to it is the brief where she's crying to journalists. You know, and you just think, what's wrong with you? The Tories wouldn't do that to their own. What's wrong with you? Yeah, it's you don't you don't get like you don't get the sense from reading this report that these that 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 many of the staffers involved uh, not only like aren't motivated to basically deal with cases, but uh, in fact make some kind of weird comments themselves, especially about what they view as the left of the party. I mean, they, like you said, they 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 call them trots. Uh, they, at one point there is a rally and they're joking about, uh, how the police are there and they hope they bring out truncheons and let's, one person says truncheons out lads, let's knock some trots. And another person says water cannons, please. Uh, which is, which is pretty astounding. (laughs) But, but what, what really gets me is that like, yeah, they were supposed to be dealing with all these cases. And then they were saying that, uh, you know, there was this giant backlog and that the Corbinites were whatever dragging their feet. And a few of these people went on a panorama program, which is a BBC sort of documentary type program as whistleblowers. Right. Uh, and it shows that some of these same people were actually themselves, the people who were supposed to be in charge of dealing with this and were dragging their feet. Yeah. I mean, questions really do have to be asked about that. And, you know, I really hope if, you know, this investigation does come to fruition, I really hope that it does, you know, get to the bottom of this and doesn't, well, doesn't cop out on it because it's fuck. It's just absolutely wild. I mean, did you see the bit in it about Douglas Murray? No. So you you know Douglas Murray, he's this kind of like <laughs> yes. far right. You know, yeah, he, he's a, he's a, he's a real fucking wild guy, and um, uh, one of his videos got shared in a, a group chat of these people, and uh, someone who worked for the party as a a policy person said in it. We can't ignore the fact that while one might be more typically terrorist behavior, they still derive from the same ideology, and Western liberal ideology is re- reluctant to take it on and expose its roots, which well, inevitably that... involves hard questions, even for so-called moderate Islam. Oof. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. Well, I think it's good to, I mean, I do kind of want to talk about the response from the party because I saw that, you know, John McDonnell, the former uh, shadow chancellor, had come out and started saying that, you know, after this investigation completes that, you know, Labor should look at suspensions for these members. And you mentioned the case with the Tories that, you know, it does seem that they, you know, were taking more of a militant line on how they discipline members of their party that step, you know, step out of bounds. And it kind of remains to be seen what Labour's going to do. Yeah, I mean, I mean, this is the problem. You know, I'm not, I'm not just trying to give, you know, Sir Keir the hard time for the sake of giving him a hard time. But, you know, he's not really been much of a presence, has he, these past, uh, this past fortnight? You're talking about Starmer. Yeah, yeah. yeah you yeah, called him yeah. Sir Keir? Sir Keir. That's very, that's, I find that if Hey, look, if you've got a title that's stupid, you deserve to wear it. <laughs> he originally wanted this report kept secret, right? Well, they didn't want to send it off to the EHRC, to the best of my knowledge. Yeah. What would the reasoning be for that? Like, why wouldn't... They? I mean, this does seem to provide some pretty important context, especially considering how these complaints were dealt with. Uh, why wouldn't they want them? Well, some people have speculated that one of the people named in the report, uh, who's currently a uh, leading figure in a large trade union, was uh, the lead, the new leadership's preferred candidate for the general secretary of the party. Mm. That's one of the theories raised. Oops. You know, I, I mean, yeah, right? You know? I, I, I will say that... I, of course, have no opinion on that, but that's one of the theories raised. Mm. I will say, just as you know, a non-member or currently a lapsed member of the Labour Party, I will say that... Uh, that, that Are you a lapsed Dane- member? No, 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 no. No, I'm part you of CP. Corbyn. You couldn't, you couldn't hack it under Corbyn. I, I'm, I'm technically <laughs> not the same Labour anymore. <laughs> I, I'm part of. I'm technically part of CPGBML. 
Um, <laughs> but that's only it's a it's it's I'm just in it because I'm related through uh, marriage to Harpel, and it's you know it's it's a sort of incestual <laughs> thing. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. I mean. You know, now Corbin is out, and uh, and as you said, Sir Keir Starmer, who I might add to our listeners, is a proud member of the Trilateral Commission, uh, is yeah, in. A, yeah, a lot to talk about there. <laughs> yes. Uh, how is the, sort of the general, I mean, it, does it seem like the party is uniting behind him? Does it seem like he's going to sort of bring the left and the right together to make the whole bird fly straight? I think that he's not really been given enough time to to show what he wants at the moment. Uh, he's, I mean, he's not entirely excluded the left from the shadow cabinet in his reshuffle, for example. He's mm-hmm. included, you know, several people from the Blairite wing of the party and there's, you know, decent left-wingers like Rebecca Long, Bailey and Cat Smith in shadow cabinet positions. He also kept the employment rights role that Jeremy Corbyn brought in, which is all about restructuring workers' rights for uh, the next time Labour going to government. That's a hugely revolutionary position, really significant one. The stuff that that department did was you know, groundbreaking, really, uh, under Corbyn's time when Laura Pidcock was the minister for that. And that, you know, that, that is a genuinely good sign that the former rail minister, Andy MacDonald, has taken over that. So you know, th- there's reasons to be cheerful there. But what broadly worries me is that a big, big chunk of his new leadership is just effectively kind of, you know, London, mm-hmm. zone two, dinner party, kind of you know, li- liberal-minded. Yeah, I saw know, the... Sort of I think it was the finance ministers and I was, um, yeah, there was like some that was like, wait, these guys are kind of to the right of the, to- of the Tories even. <laughs> like it's a little, very, cons- I mean, like these are like deep, deep Blairites, I would say. Mm. Well, there's lots of people too who are basically the people who really bang the drums for the, the sort of, you know, overturn the Brexit vote campaign, mm. you know, and, and they were really the people that destroyed our base in the former Labour heartlands in the north of England, the Midlands and so on. And, you know, the the fact that we went so soon into a, another leadership race, I think it meant the party couldn't have had some of the very serious discussions and uh, reflections that it should have had about how we effectively let, you know, a, you know, a pretty small group of middle class people to have a tantrum over the Labour Party's position on Brexit right. and let us let us overturn, you know, the democratically decided will of the people in leaving the EU. And we decided to run a campaign where, we were effectively the people trying to, you know, at the very least, disrupt the June 2016 vote. And uh, the Tories are the people interested in just getting that Brexit deadlock completely out of the way and moving on and also implementing the people's will. And we stupidly allowed ourselves to be, you know, because of a, a Blairite extra parliamentary movement, basically. Right, right, uh, you right. Know, the people's vote campaign was actually uh, two of the people named in this document led the people's vote campaign. Which you know was pretty successful in overturning Labour's respect the referendum policy, you know. So these people effectively applied like extra parliamentary pressure on the Labour left, and they got what they wanted, and the result was theirs to own. Mm. And I mean, we've just had any discussion on that. Keir Starmer's our shadow Brexit secretary, and I don't think that this is putting us in a good position to gain back you know the places that created the Labour Party effectively. But I, I think it's like, you know, we've been talking about this uh, in relation to, 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 to Bernie's run. I, I think that like, or the Democratic Party sort of electorate now, I, do you think that they want those people back? I mean, it seems like these sort of like liberal, I mean, I'm, obviously Labour is a social democratic party, but there are many liberals within it. It seems like sort of the liberal tendency now is to just solely focus on, on urban areas, basically. Mm. And this sort of middle class, and to become the essentially parties of the middle class, petit bourgeois, like PMC, whatever. Uh, and and it seems like that was really what what you know the Brexit and the people's vote, or excuse me, the uh, sort of the the movement to overturn Brexit that 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 made those tensions very apparent, especially mm. within Labour's vote share. Um, is there any sort of movement to really rectify that or to 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 change that around at all? Well, yeah, I think I think your analysis is like, you know basically correct. I think that the, there was a really interesting uh, debate in the leadership competition about constitutional issues, constitutional affairs. So Lisa Nandy and uh, Rebecca Long Bailey, they were both very interested in you know ideas around uh, a new Senate instead of a House of Lords. You know, because in our country we actually have a a Lords Parliament of unelected mm-hmm. people, which is just arranged. And uh, 
you know, they're very, they're, they were both very interested in ideas around uh, scrapping the House of Lords and replacing it with an elected Senate somewhere in the north of England or in Scotland. And uh, Keir's campaign, after waiting a few days to, you know, really make an impact of this, uh, theirs was really more about the electoral system. You know, so obviously under first past the post, which is a system with, you know, all sorts of very, you know, serious problems and uh, can create all sorts of, you know, general dodginess. Um, at least one thing it can do is that if you have a stable uh, parliamentary opposition, which is socialist and, you know, has a socialist program and can inspire people up and down the country, it can get a majority government elected and it can enact its democratically arrived at wishes, can't it? But like proportional representation effectively allows people to go on, well, political ego trips about like what specific thing they want. And it effectively divvies out power to everybody and only really results in coalition government. Mm. And uh, you see that wherever PR is implemented. But to me, that's that's really what uh, that's really what Keir Starmer's Labour is all about. You know, they know you can't get a social majority based out of particularly with a constituency system based out of uh, the liberal middle class that live in like London effectively, but it is a huge proportion of the vote. And you, by just focusing on those voters, you could get a huge electoral share without having to worry about going back to economically radical policies that could attract, you know, working class people in post-industrial areas. Yeah, think- you know, you it's funny because you see a similar response by the Democrats in America to Donald Trump's election, where suddenly they say, well, you know, it's kind of these like technocratic one weird trick fix Exactly. fixes as opposed mm. to actually doing politics. So they say, okay, we're, we're going to get rid of the electoral college mm. so that now, you know, because Hillary Clinton, you know, she could drive up the votes in big cities, right. And not focus on, and, and the Democrats can effectively then continue to, you know, move rightward and, and leave the, you know, yeah. Post-industrial rural areas that have been completely gutted over the past 40 years by their own policies. Yeah, I mean, Hillary just, was really brazen just, over it, wasn't she? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you know, just and just leave them forever because now they can just have the big urban city centers yeah. and, and drive up, you know, and drive up the votes there. And it's, so it's really interesting to see that kind of same response across the pond, as we like to say. <laughs> um, and, and it's not surprising because, like you rightly point out, you kind of it's like this tyranny of minority centrist rule. It's like, well, of course they want to have a coalition government where they get to just work with the Tories and other mm. conservative factions that would emerge. Sensible politics. Exactly. Very sensible, sensible politics the gro- the that, that is anti-democratic. <laughs> the grown-ups the- in the room. And this is what the grown-ups <laughs> in the room are saying in, in private chats. Calling, <laughs> exactly. each, calling each other pube heads. <laughs> That's yeah. not even, I, I, I don't even, I mean, maybe it's a reference to a haircut, but it seems a little <laughs> immature to me. I mean, I think a lot of these people, they're like, they're, they're, their dream government is basically what Germany has. Which yeah, they're is all technocrats. They, a, and, yeah, they just want like, Adults in the room, like manager board that just manages everything. Yeah, precisely. Um, so where 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 can you go from here? Like, what's the what's sort of the next step for 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 the left of labor or for you and your allies? What like what's going to happen now? Well, I think that the left has to think very very seriously about what it's doing at the party. I think it it can't just take away all of that you know uh, feeling of anger that it's got now out of you know, losing that election so dramatically and it can't just misplace all of that anger into attacking one another and, you know, picking each other apart, you know, as the left, particularly in Britain, is just so adept at doing. I think what it's really got to start focusing on is, you know, where were the structural imbalances, you know, which made Corbynism not what it could have been, which could have been, you know, the voice of an angry insurgent working class. Where did the, where did the left populist experiment in the UK fail? You know, uh, I think the answer is that we weren't doing so well until the 2017 election kicked in. Then people got to see the sort of politics that we were putting forward. And then we managed to get a really huge vote out of an insurgent campaign, which resonated with millions of people, particularly new voters. But I think that still it wasn't really addressing some of the structural cracks that we had in the party. And there was some attempts to remedy that, like the community organizing unit, which was interested in, you know, rebuilding trust with labor in post-industrial areas, seaside towns, uh, you know, former mining villages. Um, but I think that ultimately that millions of pounds that were put into the community organizing unit, it was effectively wasted as soon as we did the second referendum, you know, stance. Yeah. Because, you know, if 
you can't just uh, go around building trust as a political unit if your national party is effectively saying they voted the wrong way and they should vote again. Yeah. So I, I think that the the real alternative now for the for the left of the party is to effectively be the real Labour Party in many ways. Go back to the areas where the party was founded, you know, in the, the Midlands, Scotland, South Wales, the North East, the North West. You need to go back to these places and you need to start articulating, you know, a way out of the really deep pessimism that millions of people feel across this country. Like, it was incredible when you were, you know, talking to people on the doorstep during that election, uh, just the sheer uh, resignation that people had to their fate. You know, people saying stuff like, Oh, I fucking hate Jeremy Corbyn. He's going to take away all the food banks and I need them. <laughs> you know, this this sort of stuff is it's just heartbreaking because it shows you just quite how normalized austerity has got. And Boris yeah. Johnson, he didn't, you know, it's not that Boris spoke to the, uh, it wasn't like an embodiment of the far right. He was an embodiment of like the disinterested citizen. You know, and that's what Boris yeah. was so good at doing. He just refused to engage politically in anything. <laughs> he just breezed through it on the same sort of narrative set by the media. Added a few, you know, eccentric bits here and there, and he pulled off that result. It's as simple as that. And we need to start, you know, pushing for community-minded politics that can make sure that people don't feel this sense of estrangement from the future anymore. We need to start building community institutions again. We need to start being of some worth to working-class people. And you need to rebuild that trust that way. You know, but even when I was a kid, you know, there was labour clubs in my area. I went to my first like punk gig at a labour club. You know, these places, even until very, very recently, were like integral to the local communities. Yeah. And they've just been run down as the parties become this managerial organization. The whole, uh, you know, point of them uh, has been completely undermined. And there's not really ever been a left which is about fighting for these things. You know, it's always been about, you know, really, really going for policy or, uh, you know, focusing on building the left as a subculture. You know, and mm. I think policy is really important to fight for. That's absolutely true. But I think we're, we're facing an existential crisis as a party at the moment. So in my eyes, I think everything needs to be done towards, you know, getting involved with the community, rebuilding things from the bottom up again, mm -hmm. and making sure that people actually have faith in Labour as something that can cohesively change their lives. Yeah, yeah. I think that's great advice for also, you know, thinking about what to do in America as well, to be honest. Uh, yeah, I mean, Liz, you and I were talking the other week about, I think this last week, about how... Uh, people should really just study like the early German social democratic party mm, and how they yeah. basically built like a culture. Like you're saying, Marcus, you're talking about like labor clubs. There's obviously nothing like that in America, but like you can sort of, you know, make not a facsimile, but our own version of it, you know, uh, yeah. and, and build up this sort of culture. Whereas like it's in the interest of those who like basically run these parties or, or, or this, you know, PMC, whatever, I hate using that term, but you know what I mean, mm. urban elite to not do that because it's anti-technocratic. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think the SPD, you know, yeah, we were talking about like early on, but how they're actually doing like becoming like community institutions, whether it was just even like, you know, you know, everything from like theater programs and like you rightly point out like music clubs or like community activities to childcare and like mm. figuring out and like actually providing sources to like to the community rather mm. than kind of being these, you know, I know that sounds like a social club, but, but it's not really because it is mm. just becoming, it's like a new institution. Yeah. And it becomes something to people. And I mean, even in America, yeah. you know, the, you do get this amazing tradition of that sort of stuff, even in places like New York and San Francisco. You know, when you read biographies of, you know, CPUSA members and they say yeah. stuff like, oh, my, my parents met at the Finnish Workers Socialist Hall. I was about to yeah, say the totally. workers schools. There was you a know, worker just, school just down the street from me in San Francisco. Oh, really? Oh. Well, I mean, in like 1920. You know, again, you read, um, I just read Dorothy Healy's autobiography, you know, Dorothy Ray Healy, mm -hmm. uh, California Red. And like, she really goes into depth about all of this stuff and, you know, it's just one individual and you just see the amount of people that she met whose lives were just completely changed by the Communist Party. You know, this organization which packed no electoral punch whatsoever in America, but you just met thousands of people, you know, in admittedly very, very like geographically uh, isolated places of the country, mostly San Francisco and New York. Um, and they were just completely indebted to the party for the rest of their lives. Not even McCarthyism could break them. And like, yeah, and then you see, you see the SPD, in Germany, the same thing happened with the CGT in France. Mm -hmm. All across the world, people do these things as a way to build trust in 
the, the ultimate goals of socialism. Now, there's this really, really incredible book by uh, Alice Foley, who was the first female leader of the uh, Lancashire Textile Workers Federation. You know, in, in Lancashire, you know, uh, obviously Engels wrote the important book about Manchester, but it was really just about the textile yeah. industry around the Northwest. And uh, she was uh, very, very concerned that uh, she was from an Irish immigrant family to a, a town called Bolton in North Manchester. Her sister read a William Morris book and got really, really interested in socialist politics. And um, she was so worried for her sister that she prayed for her soul at mass every Sunday. And then finally, she got convinced to go down to the socialist hall. And uh, secretly, of course, she didn't tell her uh, very, very devoutly Catholic parents about it. And she met all of these wonderful people like, you know, uh, iron molders who would teach her how to like, uh, like re read and recite like Yeats poems. Uh, she met people who spoke in Lancashire dialect. She met people who could like read the stars who were illiterate textile workers. And she said, you know, from meeting these people that, you know, she got the very, very clear idea uh, for socialism for the first time in her head as like the fight for the ultimate achievement of the human race. Mm. And like, you know, the, the the fact that these, you know, small institutions, the, the socialist club that she used to go to is still there today. It's got a plaque up on the wall dedicated to one of its members who died in Spain. And, you know, you, you see like the, the tangible improvement that it gives to people's lives. And one socialist can start giving that in the here and now to people. You know, I, you know, you can really, really see why people will want to take it to the next step and say, look, you know, this is what these people can do in the here and now. What can they do if they have the reins of state power? Yeah, and it involves you in people's lives in a way that, like, of course, being in just in a party that they vote for sometimes. I mean, that's a totally different relationship. I mean, the Communist Party in America had, I think, what's called the IWO, the International Workmen's Order or something. Yeah, International Workers Order, and it was basically just like a health insurance scheme for their members. Mm. And it wasn't just that Communist Party members used it; it was poor people used it because they let mm. like black people get. Uh, you know, subscriptions to it. And like anybody joined basically, mm. which, which no one else was really doing at the time. And they had more members than the communist party because it was just like an organization for four people to be part of. Yeah. Uh, and they had clubs and dances and stuff like that as well. Um, yeah. Which just, I think that that kind of politics sounds like either foreign to people or just like too laborious, but uh, it's, it's clear that like tr trying to, I guess change a lot of these institutions from the top down doesn't really work, or at least there's a lot of competition there, uh, mm. whereas there's not a lot on the ground. Yeah, and I think that's the big step. And one of the problems about creating the left as a very large subculture is that you get people who get recruited to it, who are effectively uh, they don't want to be doing these things, you know, because it's awkward and it's weird, and you know, or de dealing with normal people. Like, don't I want to just go off and meet with my new left wing friends? When really, that, you know, that, that's that's not the point, you know, and it's not even necessarily the point of sending labor activists to go, you know, do things in food banks or whatever, you know, like missionaries. The real point is to attract, you know, make your politics attractive to the sort of person who would go out and instinctively go to the food banks and work and help out and look after people, you know. Yeah, and that's the real way I think to revive these uh, these institutions and rebuild a sense of trust in social democratic and socialist politics. I feel like that was like a lovely note to end on. <laughs> we could keep on going. I was going to say, I know, um, you know who else? You know who was born in one of those uh, communist, uh, you know, the coops in New York. Mm. I found this out the other day. You know, Harvey Weinstein was born in one of them. No, yeah, man, he was born in Electchester. My God, yeah, I think I, I, like people may not know, but New York used to have these just giant apartment buildings filled with mostly Jewish people uh, that were were basically all communists. I mean, New York had a, probably like the largest share of Communist Party membership of mm -hmm. any city, uh, definitely any city in America, but probably concentrated any city outside the Soviet Union, um, which is astounding. They had their own dances and halls and youth programs. Uh, it's, it's, it's really something. Um, oh, it's incredible. Yeah. But Aaron Bastani, you know, who again is great, and you know, Navarra should really be uh, applauded for what they've been doing throughout all this. Uh, he did a tweet the other day which really fucking had me. Um, it goes, if Harvey Weinstein was on the Labour right, then right now they would be demanding Rose McGowan apologise to him for revealing his identity. Trade unionists, <laughs> socialists and Democrats should support whistleblowers. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a good note to end on. Um, thank you so much for joining us, Mark. Is there, is there anything you want to plug or anything at all? 
Um, I think I'm all right, mate. No, this this is fantastic. Perfect. Thanks for having me. What cool. I would say, if, if people are interested in, um, you know, what's happened to the North and, and so on, I think they should check out the uh, article by Ian Lavery and John Trickett. Uh, it's called uh, Northern Discomfort, and it was written before the 2019 election, which makes it all the more sad to read, really, because it was warning that we're about to go into a period of very serious cultural disconnect with, you know, people in post-industrial areas, in the, most in the north of England. And it sets out ways by which we can improve our relationship with post-industrial working class voters. Um, I think it's a good document to discuss the renewal of the party. Um, and yeah, that's probably it for me, really. Cool. Well, thank Thanks you for, for joining us. It's been fantastic. Yeah. Thank you so much. You this is great. All right. Ta-ta. Oh, take care. Bye-bye. Neoliberal economic philosophy involves a kind of understanding that the notion of the public good is, is kind of undermined by basic market logic. Market logic turns us all into entrepreneurs. To, to, to entrepreneurs. We're competition and rivalry. Define who we are. Competition and rivalry are where the state's principal function is to secure the efficient functioning of the economy and the defense. Neoliberal. So, oof. Yeah. <laughs> Not the, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, I trust Marcus to do a good job, but. Yeah, things- I mean, I think there's a lesson here about, um, I'll just say there's a lesson here about ruthlessness that I think, you know, people should. Like, if you're going to take something away, ruthlessness and discipline are not two of the worst lessons to have to learn. Yeah, no, not at all. I mean, I think that's always a problem that we run into is that our enemies have far fewer, like, moral um, compulsions that we do <laughs> than we do. And, 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 and so are capable of grander schemes, basically. Mm. Um, but you know, possibly should take a page from, from that book and sort of learn, or at least learn from that. Yeah. One thing I found that was really astounding in this report is that in 20, this is section 6.8.4, uh, in 2019, half of all anti-Semitism complaints and a third of all anti-Semitism cases came from one individual. Um, so <laughs> It ne- seems wrong to be piling all the anti-Semitism on one person. Yeah, well, I mean, listen, <laughs> guys, I'm sorry. I was on a lot of Adderall at the time. <laughs> I was doing ketamine too, and sometimes when I get in the K-hole, I would just screen record on my phone and go through Facebook posts of uh, basically anybody I could find. Yeah, um, I mean, it's it's all a little ridiculous. I, I will say, you should read this report. I know that is the most annoying thing to say to a podcast audience that possibly I could say. Uh, but you should read the report because it's extremely illuminating. Uh, and it's a rare glimpse into, uh, uh, you know, these sort of shadowy party infrastructures that we usually don't get much of a look at. Yeah, it, it is like, you know, it's a, like we said on the, on the, in the interview, it's a big boy, but it, it's a pretty captivating read actually. Yeah. Um, and, and the text messages in between the different, uh, leaders within the party are, I mean, like I said, it's like pretty shocking. We all kind of knew this was happening. It's the same thing with Bernie. You all know it's happening. But to like really see it laid out is, you know, it's a little, it's pretty wild. Yeah. And I mean, I, I think it's important. If just for that alone, I know how much we all lo- love reading other people's text messages. <laughs> uh, but just for that alone, I would recommend reading it. I mean, skim through until you see something in italics. I don't care, but read part of it at least. Yeah. So we'll link to it and also the article from Tribune that Marcus mentioned, because I do think there's a lot in there that, that um, you know, even Americans can learn from. Yeah. Well, I am going to make uh, 400 face masks out of shoddy material and start selling them on the street corner because it's now illegal to go outside without a mask on. So I'm planning to do some uh, pandemic profiteering. Good for you. Yeah. You want to join me? I can cut you guys in. <laughs> I'll join you remotely. Yeah. Oh, well, then I'll pay you remotely. <laughs> oh, but my Wi-Fi's down. Sorry. Well, I guess I'm talking to you. All right. All right. All right. This, we've gone long. Um, well, thank you so much for joining us uh, to the audience here. I'm speaking. Uh, my name, of course, is 
member of the Trilateral Commission, uh, two-time world champion of doing the Iraq War, uh, <laughs> Sir Lord Duke Baron, uh, but also um, Prince Brace Belden. I'm Liz. Joined here, of course, by producer Young Chomsky, who does the music as well, who is a, 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 uh, a baronet, they call him. Um, and Liz, play us out. Oh, we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Jeff, 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 Jeff,